and there was a big rock up on the trail ahead of me and I didn't see a you know visual image it was a mental image and it was just Jesus was standing on that rock and just saying I am the answer to all your questions Andy Davidson's story is proof that we all have our own individual and personal stories, and most people have no idea what we have experienced in the past and continue to experience today. Hello, and welcome to the Hill Stories Podcast, a space to tell the God stories unique to the people at Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church in Gig Harbor and Port Orchard, Washington. I'm your host, David Wilson. There's a lot of people we know in our lives that we don't know a whole lot about. Today, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Andy Davidson has been a member of Chapel Hill for a while now. I actually don't even know how long you've been a member. And I can't even honestly remember how long we've known each other. Nick and I have been members for, I think, 15 years at Chapel Hill. And I think we met seven or eight years ago, maybe halfway into our time at Chapel Hill. I think so. And just sit, sit in a couple of rows behind us and people just saying, hey, that's Dave Wilson. <laughs> oh gosh, I've got to meet that guy. I'm sure that's exactly how it went. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because there are a lot of people I know at Chapel Hill simply because we've sat in the same section at church. Yeah. It's just an example of taking any opportunity you can to meet people that you'd like to know. Yeah. So thank you for saying hello way back when. Yeah, I appreciate then, that. And then it was great because we've gone to Mexico together. We've we have been in a small group with high school guys, and yeah, we've had a lot of interactions. But what I want to know is, where are you right now? What are you doing? You you're like a big shot in Gig Harbor, right? No, <laughs> <laughs> no, I am married to Nikki. We're celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. In May, about the exact same day that our oldest daughter is planning to get married. So that's fun. And we moved here because I started a job, which I'm going to be talking some about today. It's okay. part of my story. And this is the 20th year of being in that job and coming out of a pandemic this year. Everyone in the world's never been through for 100 years before, so... Notable year. A notable year. In many ways for you. Lots of milestones. Now, you said that you are about to celebrate your 25th wedding anniversary. How did you meet Nikki? So we met at a little breakfast in Washington, D.C. with Mother Teresa of Calcutta. It was blessed from the beginning. It was. It was. But there was was 5,000 other people there in the Hilton (laughs) Ballroom for the National (laughs) Prayer Breakfast. And she was the keynote speaker. That is where we met. She was a senior at the University of Washington, and I was a organizer of the event. It was in charge of being like a host and facilitator for students. Were you living in Washington State at the time, or I was not. Okay. Yeah, I grew up in Kansas, where where I lived till I was twenty five. I moved out to Washington D.C. and lived there for ten years. The first five being single my late 20s and then I married Nikki at 30 and we lived there together for five years before we moved to the Pacific Northwest primarily to be near grandparents because Nikki's parents are from this area and 
Natalie had just been born, and we wanted to do this next chapter close to family. When you helped organize that event, you were already a follower of Jesus. Yes. Where does your story begin on that? Graduating from high school, I grew up in a family where going to church or talking about Jesus wasn't really part of our dynamic at all. And if you had asked me if I believed in God, I said, no, that's, I'm an atheist, of course. Like, God's invisible. You can't prove him. Evolution explains everything. But I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it. But my senior year, I came into a situation where I had uh, some friends that I was running with that they knew I would be out of town. They knew how to sneak into my house because I had snuck out of my house with them lots of times, doing things I shouldn't have been doing. So they knew how to sneak in, and so they basically used our house as a party central place for the whole week I was gone. And my grandfather caught him, and I got home from the trip, and my grandfather wanted me to come over, and he said, why did you let your friends use your house while you were gone? And I said, I didn't do that, and he didn't believe me, and so I felt betrayed by my friends. I felt like my grandfather didn't believe me, but I also knew that I kind of invited this consequence upon myself because of some of the choices I made, and... That was the first time I started asking serious questions about, well, you know, what is the purpose of life? If I don't believe in anything, why would, why should I be upset about any of this stuff? Why can't I just have new friends or be okay with the situation with my grandpa? And I started thinking, well, I don't have any answers for this. And then I got mono my senior year, and I was in the hospital for two weeks. I was in the hospital with mono, and it was really sick. And I, I prayed for the first time. I said, God, if you're real, I'd really like to get out of the hospital. And I started reading the Bible. We had a King James that my parents got on their wedding on the bookshelf. So I just started in Genesis 1 and King James Version. And it was pretty interesting. And then just got bogged down in all the begats and the begats and the begats and kind of put it on the shelf. And then the summer after graduating, I was in Colorado hiking on a senior trip with some of my friends from earlier in elementary school and junior high. I kind of gravitated back towards that group. And we were on a hike up in Estes Park in Rocky Mountain National Park. And we were at, at almost at the top of the, the hike. And there was a big rock up on the trail ahead of me. And I didn't see a you know visual image. It was a mental image. And it was just Jesus was standing on that rock and just saying, I am the answer to all your questions. I just kind of stopped, and it was just a very poignant impression. I said, well, that's interesting. So then I picked up into the New Testament right after that. I was like, okay, I'm going to reboot, try the New Testament. And then that was weird because it was like, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And I'm like, that is radical. <laughs> what, is, what does that mean? And that was the beginning of learning more about Jesus and what he said and what he did and his story. And then I went to college and met some friends. I was in a fraternity and doing fraternity things that weren't, they were very opposed to this other track that I was interested in with Jesus and the Bible. And 
I met some people that were a part of a fellowship group and met a guy who was a college pastor at the Presbyterian Church in Wichita, Kansas, where I grew up. And when he got hired, they told him, do not do anything in this building. Go be on that campus. That's your job is to be on that campus. So we met and went through the scriptures together, and he taught me a ton, and that's how I began being a follower of Christ. One thing that I find interesting is that you actually started your journey on your own. I mean, we talk to people, and we know stories. I just started attending church, and the youth pastor was really cool. Or I had some friends that I started to hang around, something like that. But you seem to be almost on your own when you started your journey, but you were a senior in high school. It seemed that you had a mature understanding of personal responsibility at that time because you see a couple of things that go sideways and it's like, now, wait a minute, I got to figure out what I'm doing here and why and maybe change that. Where did that maturity come from? I don't know if it's maturity. It's just where I was at the time. I was never a person that had a vision for what I want to do vocationally. My grandfather used to always say, you know, when he was 90, he'd say, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And that's how I feel (laughs) to this day. I'm 55 and I've had some pretty interesting vocational experiences and blessings. But in one sense, it's not by design. But when you're back to your question, when you're 18, you've got to make decisions just staying put isn't an option and if you're starting to having to make decisions and move forward through life you have to have some kind of target or else you're lost and it started to occur to me that just a vocation and a job isn't good enough why why have a vocation why have a job do you want to get married yeah i thought i wanted to get married but and thought a lot about it so it was just you gotta make some decisions about what your life is about and And if you have to learn what your life is about, maybe you have to learn about what everyone's life is about and who, who are you? And is it just all we are just atoms that it's all meaningless and random? Like if that, it's kind of what you, if you have to answer the question, what you would have said, but do you really believe that? I like the phrase you said that you had to have a target, but it seemed like not just a target. It's helpful to have a map. Yeah. And you were developing your map. Yeah. At that time. Yeah, that's a great way to summarize it. Just it's like, hey, if I'm gonna leave my house and be a grown up, it'd be nice to know how to do that and a, a map would be great. I don't know the first foggiest what that looks like. What happened after college? So my senior year I had an opportunity to attend a student leadership forum on faith and values in Washington DC. And I was a young life volunteer and my buddy and I, who were volunteering at Young Life together, his boss, he worked for a law firm, and the the attorney said, hey, me and a, another businessman here in Wichita, we wanted to send you and whatever friend you choose, we'll send you, we'll send you to Washington, D.C. for five days, and we'll pay all your expenses, and you'll attend a prayer breakfast in National Student Leadership Forum. And I remember we met for breakfast, and my buddy Steve invited us, and here are these guys putting this offer on the table and I was like uh yes (laughs) I will do that (laughs) thank you (laughs) and it really changed it really opened my eyes to a lot of things I had through the course of college 
became very involved in Bible study, youth ministry with the high school. My mentor, the college minister, and I did a lot of trips with retreats with the high school people in our church and leading worship and giving Bible studies. And I got a lot of accolades and like, you should do this for a career. And and I thought, oh, it'd be interesting. I, I kind of like the idea of doing that. This th- I don't have any other vocational interest or job that I want to do. And this is very affirming. And, and then when I was at the National Prayer Breakfast, I sort of caught a vision to do that in Washington, D.C. And I thought, well, there's no way that you can get a job doing this. So I kind of put it out of my mind. But it was just, I was really intrigued by doing student ministry in the nation's capital and being involved with some of the congressional leadership who were a part of that whole prayer breakfast student leadership dynamic there. So I just thought, well, well, and I had a meeting with our pastor because I was like, I'm about to graduate. You know, I chose a degree because I kind of liked it and was interested in it. it. Was I was an economics and history major because I had to choose something, and those were the things I was interested in. But I had no idea, and I'm coming to graduation, and I needed a map because now you have to get a job. And this pastor said, I said, how do I choose what to do? Like, I have to get a job. And he said, well, my advice would be, like, who do you know who's doing something that you just admire and you think, I'd like to do that? I'm really passionate about doing that. Uh, Those guys out in D.C. that I got to meet, but I have no idea how (laughs) I can get a job doing that. So I just took a job. I was a college admissions rep for the university in my town where I grew up in. So I went around to college fairs and high school, met with seniors and went through the guidance counselor's office, did that for two years, and had a blast doing that. It was a great job. And during that time, I went to a men's retreat in a little small camp in Kansas. There was... uh, I don't know, 50 men or something like that. And I woke up on Saturday morning and I was late and a guy had come in late that night. I hadn't met him on Friday night and it was like a big bunk room and everyone else was at breakfast. And and that guy, his name is Tim. Tim just started chatting with me and we were talking there in the uh, bunk room and we just really connected quickly. He, He was a good question asker and He's like, who are you? I'm Andy. Who are you? I'm Tim. And 15 minutes later, do you want to move out to Washington, D.C. and work with me and with the student ministry? Said, How can you ask me that? Dude, we just <laughs> met 15 minutes ago, and we were just talking in a bunk room. He goes, the reason I can ask you that is because I ask that to 200 people probably a year, and no one says yes. So I, it's very low risk for me. I said, well, sucker. You just don't know who you asked. (laughs) He just named your target. (laughs) He did. I'm doing that. So I put in my notice and made arrangements and packed up my car and drove out to D.C. And we just smooth sailing right after that. Then it's all downhill. It's been (laughs) one journey of rainbows and chocolate rivers ever since. Chocolate Rivers. That's a very specific image. Okay. (laughs) But it hasn't been smooth sailing all the way. When did you find hurdles? So the first hurdle when I was, so I'd been out there for probably three years and it was the 
it was right after that prayer breakfast where I met Nikki with that Mother Teresa was at, and I just could not stop thinking about her. So I was trying to pursue her, but not really saying, hey, I'm pursuing you, but it, she just thought I was doing super follow-up correspondence from her. She's like, man, they really do good follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> so finally I came to this crossroads of, okay, I'm doing this thing. I like it. I like. The, I really like the people I'm doing it with. I feel a little bit like I don't know that I'm ready to start a family doing this. And is, the, is it the money? Because I didn't get into doing that work for the paycheck, although... We're fine. We we lived a great life, but just I read a book. It was called "God Loves Our Work." Did Jesus waste the first thirty years of his life? And the premise of the book was, you know, Jesus had a job before he was leading Bible studies and discipling people. And I thought, oh, I, I kind of never have done that, and I kind of didn't see myself doing this forever and I kind of thought you know I want to work I want to work in business what kind of business I don't know I want to be in the marketplace and I'm not just someone that's a minister I want to have a a more accessible entree into people's lives around a profession and also I wanted to get married and I finally found somebody that I felt that way about and I started not sleeping and I started not eating and I started feeling horrible about myself, and I started not wanting to get out of bed. And I was in in that state, sort of muddling through for about six months. And a friend of mine, who was getting a counseling degree, he goes, uh, "Just a second. He pulls out this big manual, this big diagnostic manual called the DSM, and he flips it over and he goes, "Read these ten symptoms. How many do you have?" I said, ten out of ten." He goes, "You're having a severe." depressive episode usually hits men in their mid to late 20s I was in my mid to late 20s I was having every one of those symptoms and so I went to my doctor and I got on a antidepressant and I started working that through with my buddies and you know once I it wasn't just me who was having this once I knew that this was something that was more commonplace it was really helpful and Nikki and I were dating at that time, and she was very patient through that. I thought, well, this is going to scare her off totally. Like, she's getting involved in a relationship with a guy that's, you know, had a ma- major mental breakdown. It's probably mm-hmm. not good for the future of that relationship. But she, for whatever reason, stuck in there. She liked the way that I responded to that. So we got married, and I kept doing what I was doing, but really praying about what to do next. And then our oldest was born, and you know now's the time. So let's just do it. Again, terrible advice, quitting a job, moving across the country with a little baby and a, and a wife of five years, and just trusting that you're going to find a job. But that's what we did. And everyone was going through a recession and losing jobs. No one was really hiring. and But when someone was hiring, I did have a connection with a firm that helps teachers and hospital employees and public uh, employees with their retirement. There's a supplemental retirement plan, and this company was really involved in that marketplace. And I had a friend of a friend that was in a position to hire me here doing that work. And I was like, okay, I think I should do it. I was scared because I just really wanted a salary and 
my own office. <laughs> it was so very specific. Very fairy tale. <laughs> but you know, I thought well, being specific hasn't hurt me before. And it was just very naive to think what I pictured of getting a job in business was not how it works. You know, they don't just hand those out like in the movies. And this job was definitely no office. You're in your car, you're driving around to schools and hospitals and you're talking to people. And by the way, there's no salary. You know, we'll give you a stipend your first year so you don't starve, but you really have to be good at the job and you have to connect with people to make it and make a living. And the first two to five years is going to be really hard. But if you're good at it, you can really be in charge of your schedule and your time and thought, okay. I don't have any other choices. So I told her I would take the job. And I remember driving up. I was meeting Nikki and her parents and, you know, Natalie, who was like one, meeting them up at a cabin up near Mount Rainier. And the whole drive there, I completely chickened out. I convinced myself I had made a mistake by accepting this job. I wasn't ready. I was afraid. And I knew also that it was based on fear and it wasn't the right decision of faith. And I knew that this was an opportunity that God had given me. And I still turned away. And I called the next Monday and I said, actually, I'm not ready to take that job. I think I'm going to f- keep looking for something else. So for another nine months, I beat my head against the wall. And I realized that nine months ago, my reason was fear, not faith. And that this was really the step that I needed to, to make. And so I called and I said, is there any chance that that territory is still available? She said, yeah, do you want it? It's yours. So I had a second chance. First year was actually not bad. But I got to the end of the first year, and the stipend went away. And I was looking at, how am I going to repeat this for another year? And then another year after that. I just I didn't see how it was going to. Like, how am I going to have those same opportunities? You know, it was like. Yeah, it worked this last year, but I just can't see any way it's going to keep working. So I entered into my second major depressive episode, according to the DSM manual. And luckily, Nikki was patient. My boss was patient, covered for me, said, okay, I'll get your back. Just take care of yourself. So that duration of that depressive episode was a lot shorter than the first one because I knew what to do and I knew what it was and when you face a foe that you've faced before and you've come through the battle you know that you can do it again it just took some time so then I'd say for the next five years it was a it was a definite battle I wasn't sure I was going to make it but then I started to not feel that way at the beginning of every year or at the beginning of every day and I'd say very gradually over the next 15 years, it's become a vocation that I love, that I see as a 100% ministry because money and finances is very close to the closest thing in people's minds and hearts and their fears and their dreams. And you get to be a trusted person to help guide them through those decisions. And it's a vehicle that the Lord used to provide to have a family and to have five daughters. And and I look back and I think I fell into this great vocation, kicking and screaming not to fall back into it. But it was purely by, I felt like I just had no other choice, back up against the wall. Uh, and 
so grateful. That's how it panned out. A lot of things have been going through in my mind as you've been talking. I had wondered, you know, what had happened to your original depressive episode. And it was just kind of in the background, almost simmering to a certain degree until this big trigger comes along of your job and heading into the second year and what will that hold? It sounds like it's pretty much an ongoing battle. And what do you do on a daily basis to lessen the effect of that? Yeah. So depression, mental health disorders are just every year I'm alive in this world, in this country, you just become more and more aware of how prevalent it is. And I have talked to a lot of people that suffer with what I would call chronic, where it's gone on for months, years. There might be some relief from here and there. And I, mine has been very acute, very deep, but of relatively short durations, you know, six months, three months. And I probably had three or four more that have been weeks, maybe a month at the longest. In talking with my doctor and Nikki, it's like, hey, these serotonin medications are very low side effects, risk. There's no downside economic reason not to be on them for your life, except for your own, you know, pride. And I've dealt with that of stopping that medication because like, oh, I think I'm good. It's been four years. I haven't had any symptoms. I'm good. I don't need to be a person that's on that. And so a few years ago, I was like, no, you need to just, just stay on it. I mean, just why not? That's a low hanging fruit. Why not just be smart? So I've kind of made peace with that. Uh, I, now I recognize when it's coming on, I can feel it and I know what it is. And I know that to the degree that it gets very intense and incapacitating, it does provide an amazing silver lining because you can only think about the next thing. Because if you think more than one next move, like I'm going to put one leg out of my bed onto the, the floor. Now I'm going to put the next leg out. I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to call this client. I'm going to clean this dish and put it in the dishwasher. I'm going to pull this weed that's how focused you have to get to just get through the day. And that is incredible training for actually, I think that the way that we're all called to live, which is we don't have tomorrow promised. God is really in the present moment. C.S. Lewis said that this present moment is the point that eternity and time touch. God's provision isn't in the future. Having the stamina or Knowing how it's going to work out is, is not in the future. It's only, what are you going to do next? So when I'm in a severe depressive mode, that's the only way I, I can survive. Otherwise, it just snowballs down to hell. But I can do the next thing. And after a while of doing the next thing, the depression lifts. And then when you're in the, in the spirit and in your best day, you know, they call it the flow state, and you're actually in, in much more of a peaceful, happy, blessed, whatever you want to call it, mood, and you can still just do the next thing. That's like one of the best mental experiences to be in, which is the exact opposite. But the, the net result of what you're actually doing moment to moment is the same. It's the next thing. So it's been a training in that. You mentioned that there has been a silver lining to it. Now, I did not know that you 
have suffered from depression in the past. When I think of you, I think of a good listener, easygoing, friendly. You mentioned earlier when you were speaking with Tim at the men's retreat that he was a good question asker. I think you're a good question asker. Are these qualities that you've always had or has this been born out of your own struggles and you understand that everyone is going through a battle and you just try to be the best you can for them? I'd say both. I think it is how I'm wired. I think it's how God wired me to be, to interact. But I also think it's what I've had people model for me. And back to what that pastor told me when I was trying to figure out my vocational pursuit, he said, you know, pick people that you admire and that you want to be like. What do they do for a job? So I've definitely picked it up by people that I admire, but maybe I admire them because I know that there's a part of me that has that in me. And it's sort of a reinforcing dynamic. We talked about your initial target and establishing a map. You understood that Jesus was part of the solution, was part of the answer to what you were looking for. How has Jesus been manifested in your life along the way, in the journey? It started with with a, a hunger to know what's really behind everything and life and and having a somewhat of a vision or a revelation that Jesus is at, is at the answer of that question. So then it was just getting familiar with who Jesus was, what he said, you know, reading the gospel accounts, which opens up 66 long and, or long and short, but the whole thing's very long book that's really the centerpiece of all of civilization and all movies, all literature, all, you know, it's the bedrock blueprint for everything that we're exposed to. It's a bottomless well of information to apply in every situation, be it marriage, be it parenting, be it being a friend, being a financial advisor, being a human. I found Jesus is very practical because Every experience that I have, and I'm assuming it's every experience that you have, we all have problems. Like right now, you'd have problems that are front and center. You can't, they're not, Dave's problems are not my problems, but they're Tiffany's problems. And people listening to these kinds of podcasts, if anything that comes away from my story, it's not going to be practical advice for your life and your problem. If anything, it's just inspiration that... You have to find a source, someone that can help you map out your exact situation. And you have to apply principles, guidance, other people's examples. You can't apply them directly because it's my problem. And it can only be accessible and useful to the degree that you or I see what that problem is, see where it's coming from. Is it is it outside of me or is it inside of me? Why am I like why am I so worried about where the my business is going to come from next year? Cuz I'm 55 and God's provided every year. What you're worrying right now about what if this what if that happens? Like where's that coming from? I remember Jesus meeting you back on this rock. We've come a long way. Of everything I've experienced, I've read, I've heard other people's experiences, what do I need to know right now? You need to know 
that you don't know what's coming. There's going to be a lot of good things coming. There's going to be a lot of bad things coming. And you're going to die. And your kids are going to grow up and get married and leave your house. And I did that too. And that was a long-winded answer that may not be usable. (laughs) I liked it because when we speak to people, their story is specifically their story. It's unique. It's beautiful. It's tragic. It's everything wrapped up because that's who we are in so many ways. But I am always looking for what is some touchstone? What is some thing that can be pulled out that we can all learn from or we can all use? But you make the point eloquently, I think, that because our story is specific to us, the answers to our problems are going to be specific to us also. Mm -hmm. There may be some hints, there may be some ideas, there may be some clues as to the direction we can go, but the answers are purely our answers and not suitable for anyone else, except for the fact that Jesus is always behind the answer. And that's really the target that we need to be developing our map for. Yeah, one story is right in the beginning of Genesis where Adam and Eve want to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And like that was the one tree that God said, don't eat from. That just has never made sense to me. Probably from that first time I pulled down the Bible, that was one of the first stories I would have read. And I was like, wouldn't that be the one tree that like God would be totally great with? Because like, hey, I can know what's good, do it. I can know what's evil, not do it. But that was the one tree not to do. And that was the tree that Satan wanted humans to do. You mean Satan wanted people to know good and evil? Wouldn't he be the good guy in the story? And so in wrestling with that and hearing teaching on that, and it's it's dawned on me, and it's really the wrestling, because we wrestle with our problems that are right in our face. That's where our our attention is. So we wrestle with things. But to your point, the idea of having a tree that would tell me good and evil, it would cut out having to rely on God in that moment. I'd have a mediator that I could worship. I could be like, I wouldn't need God because now I know how to figure out good and evil. That was what God was trying to protect us from because he didn't want to get cut out. He made us, made me because he wants me to engage and wrestle with that problem that's right in my face and not in anyone else's face because he wants to be the one to guide me to the degree that it cuts me out wrestling with it and meeting God like Jacob wrestled, you know, and got injured, but he also became blessed. Jacob became a you know, patriarch, right. I think that's the danger of relying on other people's advice and prescriptions and because God wants us to go to him. Andy, I've known you for a few years now, but I don't ever remember sitting down and just talking to you, finding out who you were. If there's anything I want our listeners to take away from today's conversation, it's to think of someone you know who you want to know better. Give them a call, send a text. Mm -hmm. 
if you do, I think that you may be as blessed as I have been today. So thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, thanks, Dave. This is an individual personal account. In no way are we attempting to diagnose or treat the state of mental health for another individual. There are many resources available to help you if you suffer from depression or other mental illness, including, but not limited to, Mental Health America at 1-800-273-TALK. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has a national helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. The Crisis Text Line can be texted at 741-741 in the U.S., U.K., or Canada. And of course, Chapel Hill's own counseling program is available at 253-853-0291. All of these are good beginning points. A thank you to Tiffany Moore, whose brainchild became Hill Stories, Judson Taylor, Communications Marketing Director at Chapel Hill Gig Harbor, the supportive staff and pastors at Chapel Hill, and of course, our listeners. This has been Hill Stories, originating at Chapel Hill Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. The opinions expressed are those of the participants for the edification of our listeners and do not necessarily reflect those of Chapel Hill leadership or the Evangelical Presbyterian Church of the United States. If you would like more information or to submit an idea for a future episode, our email address is hillstories at chapelhillpc.org. For everyone here at Chapel Hill, I'm David Wilson. Thank you and God bless.